Book One, Chapter Thirteen of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Arachne by George Ebers. Book One, Chapter Thirteen. Chapter Thirteen. The following day the sun shone radiantly, with scorching brilliancy, upon Tennis and the archipelago, which at this season of the year surrounded the little city of weavers. Young Philotus, without going to rest, had set out at dawn in pursuit of game, accompanied by a numerous hunting party, to which several of the Pelusinian officers belonged. He too had brought home a great quantity of booty, with which he had expected to awaken Daphne's admiration, and to lay as a token of homage at her feet. He had intended to lead before her garland slaves bearing, tied by ropes, bunches of slaughtered wild fowl, but his reception was very different from what he had anticipated. Instead of praising his exploit, he had been indignantly requested to remove the poor, easily killed victims from her presence, and, wounded and disappointed, he had retired to his magnificent Nile boat, where, spent by his sleepless night, he slumbered so soundly on his soft cushions, he did not appear at the breakfast-table which the grey-haired commander of Pelusium had invited him to attend on his galley. While others were still feasting there, Daphne was enjoying an hour alone with her companion, Chrysilla. She had remained absent from Philippus's banquet, and her pale cheeks showed the ill effects produced by the excitement of the previous night. A little before noon, Hermann came to see her. He, too, had not gone to the Pelusinians' breakfast. After Althea had left him the evening before, he went directly back to the White House, and, instead of going to rest, devoted himself to Myrtillus, for the difficulty of breathing, which during his industrious life in quiet seclusion had not troubled him for several months, attacked him with twofold violence after the gaiety of the previous night. Herman had not left him an instant until day brought the sufferer relief, and he no longer needed the supporting hand of his kind nurse. While Herman, in his own sleeping room, ordered Bias to anoint his hair and beard and put on festal garments, the slave told him certain things that destroyed the last remnant of composure in his easily agitated soul. With the firm resolution to keep the appointment on Pelican Island, Herman had gone at sunset, in response to the Alexandrian's invitation, to attend her banquet, and by no means unwillingly, for his parents' old friends were dear to him, and he knew by experience the beneficial influence Daphne's sunny, warm-hearted nature exerted upon him. Yet this time he did not find what he expected. In the first place, he had been obliged to witness how earnestly Philotus was pressing his suit, and perceived that her companion Chrysilla was most eagerly assisting him, as she saw in the young aristocrat a suitable husband for the daughter of Archias, and it was her duty to assign the guests their seats at the banquet. She had given the cushion beside Daphne to Philotus, and also willingly fulfilled Althea's desire to have Hermann for her neighbor. When Chrysilla presented the black-bearded artist to the Thracian, she would have sworn that Althea found an old acquaintance in the sculptor, but Hermann treated the far-famed relative of Queen Arsinoe as coldly and distantly as if he had now seen her for the first time, and with little pleasure. In truth, he was glad to avoid women of Althea's stamp, 
for some time he had preferred to associate with the common people, among whom he found his best subjects, and kept far aloof from the court circles to which Althea belonged, and which, thanks to his birth and his ability as an artist, would easily have been accessible to him also. The over-refined women, who gave themselves airs of avoiding everything which imposes a restraint upon nature, and therefore, in their transparent robes, treated with contempt all that modest Macedonian dames deemed worthy of a genuine woman's consideration, were repulsive to him, perhaps because they formed so rude a contrast to his noble dead mother and to Daphne. Although he had been very frequently in feminine society, Althea's manner at first caused him a certain degree of embarrassment, for, in spite of the fact that he believed he met her here for the first time, there was something familiar about her, especially in the tone of her voice, and he fancied that her first words were associated with some former ones. Yet no, if he had ever met her, he would surely have remembered her red-gold hair and the other peculiarities of a personality, which was remarkable in every respect. It soon proved that they were total strangers, and he wished matters to remain so. He was glad that she attracted him so little, for at least she would scarcely make the early departure to the Beamite, which he considered his duty a difficult task. True, he admired from the first the rare milk-white line of her delicate skin, which was wholly free from rouge. His artist's eye perceived that, and the wonderfully beautiful shape of her hands and feet. The pose of the head on the neck, too, as she turned toward him, seemed remarkably fine. This slender, pliant woman would have been an admirable model. Again and again she reminded him of a gay lesbian, with whom he had caroused for a night, during the last Dionysia in Alexandria. Yet, on closer inspection, the two were as different as possible. The former had been as free and reckless in her conduct as Althea was reserved. The hair and eyebrows of the lesbian, instead of reddish gold, were the deepest black, and her complexion, he remembered it perfectly, was much darker. The resemblance probably consisted merely in the shape of the somewhat too narrow face, with its absolutely straight nose, and a chin which was rather too small, as well as in the sound of the high voice. Not a serious word had reached his ears from the wanton lips of the lesbian, while Althea at once desired information concerning his art, and showed that she was thoroughly familiar with the works and the aspirations of the Alexandrian sculptors. Although aware that Hermann had begun his career as an artist, and was the leader of a new tendency, she pretended to belong to the old school, and thereby irritated him to contradiction and the explanation of his efforts, which were rooted in the demands of the present day, and the life of the flourishing capital. The Thracian listened to the description of the new art struggling to present truth, as if these things were welcome surprises, grand revelations, for which she had waited with eager longing. True, she opposed every statement hostile to the old beliefs, but her extremely expressive features soon betrayed to him that he was stirring her to reflect, shaking her opinions, and winning her to his side. Already, for the sake of the good cause, he devoted himself with the utmost zeal to the task of convincing Althea. She, however, did not make it an easy one, but presented clever arguments against his assertions. Whenever he or she, by way of example, mentioned any well-known work of art, she imitated, as if involuntarily, its pose and action with surprising fidelity, 
frequently also in admirable caricature, whose effect was extremely comical. What a woman! She was familiar with whatever Grecian art had created, and the animated conversation became a bewitching spectacle. When the Grammateus Proclus, who was Althea's traveling companion, had a certain claim upon her attention, mingled for a while in the discussion and attracted Althea's notice, Hermann felt injured, and answered his sensible remarks with such rudeness that the elder man, whose social position was so much higher, angrily turned his back upon him. Althea had imposed a certain degree of restraint upon herself while talking to the Grammateus, but during the further conversation with Hermann, she confessed that she was decidedly of his opinion, and added to the old reasons for the deposition of beauty and ideality, in favor of truth and reality, new ones which surprised the sculptor. When she at last offered him her hand for a firm alliance, his brain was fevered, and it seemed a great honor when she asked eagerly what would occupy him in the immediate future. Passionate sympathy, echoed in every word, was expressed in every feature, and she listened as if a great happiness was in store for herself, when he disclosed the hopes which he based upon the statue of Arachne. True, as time passed, he had spoken more than once of the necessity of retiring, and before midnight really tried to depart, but he had fallen under Althea's thrall, and in reply to her inquiry, what must shorten these requisite hours, had informed her, in significant words, what drew him away, and that his delay threatened him with the loss of a model, such as the favor of fate rarely bestowed upon an artist. Now the Thracian for the first time permitted her eyes to make frank confessions. She also bent forward with a natural movement to examine the artistic work on a silver vase, and as while doing so her peplos fell over his hand, she pressed it tenderly. He gazed ardently up at her, but she whispered softly, Stay! You will gain through me something better than awaits you there, and not only for today and tomorrow. We shall meet again in Alexandria, and to serve your art there shall be a beloved duty. His power of resistance was broken, yet he beckoned to his slave Bias, who was busied with the mixing jars, and ordered him to seek Ledska and tell her not to wait longer. Urgent duties detained him. While he was giving this direction, Althea had become engaged in the gay conversation of the others, and, as Thione called Hermann, and he was also obliged to speak to Daphne, he could not again obtain an opportunity for private talk with the wonderful woman who held out far grander prospects for his art than the refractory rude Beamite maiden. Soon Althea's performance seemed to prove how fortunate a choice he had made. Her arachne appeared like a revelation to him. If she kept her promise, and he succeeded in modeling her in the pose assumed while imagining the process of transformation, and presented her idea to the spectators, the great success which hitherto, because he had not yielded to demands which were opposed to his convictions, he had vainly expected, could no longer escape him. The Alexandrian fellow artists, who belonged to his party, would gratefully welcome this special work for what grew out of it would have nothing in common with the fascination of superhuman beauty, by which the older artists ensnared the hearts and minds of the multitude. He would create a genuine woman, who would not lack defects, yet who, though she inspired neither gratification nor rapture, would touch, perhaps even thrill, the heart by absolute truth. While Althea was standing on the pedestal, 
she had not only represented the transformation into the spider, but experienced it, and the features of the spectators revealed that they believed they were witnessing the sinister event. His aim was now to awaken the same feelings in the beholders of his arachne. Nothing, nothing at all must be changed in the figure of the model, in which many might miss the roundness and plumpness so pleasing to the eye. Althea's very defects would perfect the figure of the restless, wretched weaver, whom Athena transformed into the spider. While devoting himself to nursing his friend, he had thought far less of the new love-happiness which, in spite of her swift flight, was probably awaiting him through Althea, than of the work which was to fill his existence in the immediate future. His healthy body, steeled in the palestra, felt no fatigue after the sleepless night passed, amid so many powerful excitements, when he retired to his chamber, and committed himself to the hands of his slave. It had not been possible to hear his report before. But when he at last received it, Hermann was to learn something extremely unpleasant, and not only because no word of apology, or even explanation of his absence, had reached Ledska. Bias was little to blame for this neglect, for in the first place, he had found no boat to reach the Pelican Island, because half Tennis was on the road to Tanis, where, on the night of the full moon, the brilliant festivals of the full Eye of Horns, and the great Astarte, were celebrated by the mixed population of this place. When a boat which belonged to Daphne's galley was finally given to him, the Beamite girl was no longer at the place appointed for the meeting. Hoping to find her on the owl's nest with old Tabus, he then landed there, but had been so uncivilly rebuffed on the shore by a rough fellow that he might be glad to have escaped with sound limbs. Lastly, he stole to Ledska's house, and, knowing that her father was absent, had ventured as far as the open courtyard in the center of the stately dwelling. The dogs knew him, and as a light was shining from one of the rooms that opened upon the courtyard, he peeped in and saw Teus, Ledska's younger sister. She was kneeling before the statue of a god at the back of the room, weeping, while the old housekeeper had fallen asleep with the distaff in her lap. He called cautiously to the pretty child. She was awaiting the return of her sister, who, she supposed, was still detained on the owl's nest by old Tabus's predictions. She had sorrowful tidings for her. The husband of her friend Gula had returned on his ship and learned that his wife had gone to the Greek studio. He had raged like a madman, and turned the unfortunate woman pitilessly out of doors after sunset. Her own parents had only been induced to receive her with great difficulty. Paseth, the jealous husband, had spared her life and refrained from going at once to kill the artist solely because Herman had saved his little daughter at his own peril from the burning house. Now, said Ledska's pretty little sister, it would also be known that she had gone with Gula to his master, who was certainly a handsome man, but for whom, now that little Smethus was wooing her, she cared no more than she did for her runaway cat. All tennis would point at her, and she dared not even think what her father would do when he came home. These communications had increased Herman's anxiety. He was a brave man, and did not fear the vengeance of the enraged husband, against whom he was conscious of no guilt except having persuaded his wife to commit an imprudence. What troubled him was only the consciousness that he had given her an innocent little Teus, every reason to curse their meeting. The ardent warmth with which Gula blessed him as the preserver of her child had given him infinite pleasure. Now it seemed as if he had been guilty of an act of baseness, 
by inducing her to render a service which was by no means free from danger, as though he wished to be paid for a good deed. Besides, the slave had represented the possible consequences of his imprudence in the most gloomy light, and, with the assurance of knowing the disposition of his fellow countrymen, urged his master to leave tennis at once. The other Beamite men, who would bear anything rather than the interference of a Greek in their married lives, might force Gula's husband to take vengeance on him. He said nothing about anxiety concerning his own safety, but he had good reason to fear being regarded as a go-between, and called to account for it. But his warnings and entreaties seemed to find deaf ears in Hermann. True, he intended to leave Tennis as soon as possible, for what advantage could he now find here? First, however, he must attend to the packing of the statues, and then try to appease Ledska, and make Gula's husband understand that he were casting off his pretty wife unjustly. He would not think of making a hasty departure, he told the slave, especially as he was to meet Althea, Queen Arsinoe's art-appreciating relative, in whom he had gained a friend, later in Alexandria. Then Bias informed him of a discovery which one of the Thracian slave women had helped him, and what he carelessly told his master drove the blood from his cheeks, and, though his voice was almost stifled by surprise and shame, made him assail him with questions. What great thing had he revealed? There had been reckless gaiety at every festival of Dionysus, since he had been in the artist's service, and the slave had indulged in the festal mirth no less freely than the masters. To intoxicate themselves with wine, the gift of the god to whom they were paying homage, was not only permitted, but commanded, and the juice of the grape proved its all-equalizing power. There had been no lack of pretty companions even for him, the bondman, and the most beautiful of all had made eyes at his master, the tall slender man with the splendid black beard. The reckless lesbian who had favored Hermann at the last Dionysia had played pranks with him madly enough, but then had suddenly vanished. By his orders, Bias had tried to find her again, but, in spite of honest search, in vain. Just now he had met, as Althea's maid, the little Syrian Margula, who had been in her company, and raced along in the procession of bacchanals in his, Bias's arms. True, she could not be persuaded to make a frank confession, but he, Bias, would let his right hand wither if Hermann's companion at the Dionysia was any other than Althea. His master would own that he was right if he imagined her with black hair instead of red. Plenty of people in Alexandria practiced the art of dying, and it was well known that Queen Arsinoe herself mingled in the throng at the Dionysia with the handsome Ephebi, who did not suspect the identity of his companion. This was the information which so deeply agitated Hermann, and then led him, after pacing to and fro a short time, to go first to Myrtilus and then to Daphne. He found his friend sleeping, and though every fiber of his being urged him to speak to him, he forced himself to leave the sufferer undisturbed. Yet so torturing a sense of dissatisfaction with himself, so keen a resentment against his own adverse destiny had awakened with him, that he could no longer endure to remain in the presence of his work, with which he was more and more dissatisfied. Away from the studio. There was a gay party on board the galley of his parents' old friends. Wine should bring him forgetfulness, too, bless him again with the sense of joyous existence, which he knew so well, and which now he seemed on the point of losing. 
when he had once talked and drunk himself into the right mood, life would wear a less gloomy face. No, it should once more be gay and reckless. And Althea? He would meet her, with whom he had once caroused and reveled madly enough in the intoxication of the last Dionysia, and, instead of allowing himself to be fooled any longer, and continuing to bow respectfully before her, would assert all the rights she had formerly so liberally granted. He would enjoy today, forget tomorrow, and be gay with the gay. Eager for new pleasure, he drew a long breath as he went out into the open air, pressed his hands upon his broad chest, and with his eyes fixed upon the commandant of Pelusium's galley, bedecked with flags, walked swiftly toward the landing place. Suddenly from the deck, shaded by an awning, the loud laugh of a woman's shrill voice reached his ear, blended with the deeper tones of the Grammateus, whose attacks on the previous night Herman had not forgotten. He stopped as if the laugh had pierced him to the heart. Proclus appeared to be on the most familiar terms with Althea, and to meet him with the Thracian now seemed impossible. He longed for mirth and pleasure, but was unwilling to share it with these two. As he dared not disturb Myrtilus, there was only one place where he could find what he needed, and this was, he had said so to himself when he turned his back on his sleeping friend, in Daphne's society. Only yesterday he would have sought her without a second thought, but today Althea's declaration that he was the only man whom the daughter of Archias loved stood between him and his friend. He knew that from childhood she had watched his every step with sisterly affection. A hundred times she had proved her loyalty. Yet, dear as she was to him, willingly he would have risked his life to save her from danger. It had never entered his mind to give the tie that united them the name of love. An older relative of both in Alexandria had once advised him, when he was complaining of his poverty, to seek her hand, but his pride of manhood rebelled against having the wealth which fate denied flung into his lap by a woman. When she looked at him with her honest eyes, he could never have brought himself to feign anything, least of all a passion of which, tenderly attached to her though he had been for years, hitherto he had known nothing. Do you love her? Herman asked himself as he walked toward Daphne's tent, and the anticipated no had pressed itself upon him far less quickly than he expected. One thing was undeniably certain, whoever won her for a wife, even though she were the poorest of the poor, must be numbered among the most enviable of men. And should he not recognize in his aversion to every one of her suitors, and now to the aristocratic young Philotus, a feeling which resembled jealousy? No, he did not and would not love Daphne. If she were really his, and whatever concerned him had become hers, with whom could he have sought, in hours like these, soothing, kind, sensible counsel, comfort that calmed the heart, and the refreshing dew which his fading courage and faltering creative power required? The bare thought of touching clay and wax with his fingers, and taking hammer, chisel, and file in his hands, was now repulsive. And when, just outside of the tent, a Beamite woman who was bringing fish to the cook, reminded him of Ledska, and that he had lost her in the right model for his arachne, he scarcely regretted it. End of Book 1, Chapter 13